on the Zero Hour. I, as always, am your host, Richard R.J. Escow. I've looked forward to speaking with my guest, uh, my next guest, for a very long time. I've been reading his work and uh, following his uh, thinking to the best of my ability for quite a long time. He, his work on debt uh, had a was a major factor in shaping the network of my late friend David Graeber, who's been on the who had been on the show a few times, and by extension was a major factor in shaping the Occupy movement. Uh, he is a uh, pre- as the I should say president of the Institute for the Study of Long Term Economic Trends, ISLET. He is a Wall Street financial analyst, a distinguished a research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, where I have friends. And uh, he is the author of a number of books. He has just released uh, a third edition of uh, a book that he first wrote uh, in the late 60s and has been influential ever since, entitled, entitled Super Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, and he joins us now. So first of all, Michael Hudson, uh, welcome to the program. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, uh, well, it's a pleasure. And, uh, you know, this uh, the concept of your book, which has just been reissued, uh, is something that I think a lot of people nebulously grasp parts of, but don't have a firm fix on. I think people, a lot of people, particularly people who would watch a program like this, understand that there is a a deep and symbiotic relationship between uh, the U.S. economy and global capital and U.S. influence and, uh, you know, what you described as super imperialism. But I think the mechanics of it are obscure to people. And uh, it seems to me that's what your book uh, goes, sets about addressing. And uh, uh, could you just briefly give us kind of an overview of what this machinery consists of? Well, the basic point is that America controls other countries financially more than militarily. And uh, if I wrote the book uh, right after the United States went off gold in uh, 1971. I'd written chapters and published them before, but uh, the big part of the book is on uh, the balance of payments. Uh, uh, The entire balance of payments of the United States in the 50s, 1960s, part of the 70s is military in in character. And uh, as a result of uh, the military spending uh, culminating in the Vietnam War, uh, the United States uh, was losing what it had had given it all of its world power since uh, World War I. It had over 75% of the world's gold, and it was losing this power. And when uh, the United States was finally forced off gold uh, by the uh, military spending, the, the American government and the State Department and the White House thought this means uh, the end of American empire. And what I wrote was, well, actually, this strengthens America's hold over the rest of the world. Because in the 19, late 1960s and 70s, every uh, Friday we'd look at the, uh, when I worked at the Chase Manhattan Bank, is a balance of payments economist. We'd look at the uh, uh, Federal Reserve's gold holdings and how much gold would cover the dollar bills that you have in your pocket. Well, General de Gaulle was cashing in uh, the money that we would spend uh, uh, buying a, a Southeast Vietnamese currency 
the Vietnamese bank would send it to Paris. Paris would turn in these dollars uh, for gold. And America thought, without, without having gold, how are we going to finance our military spending? And without military spending, how can we support and force other countries to support our policies? Well, what I said was once, the, once central banks uh, are no longer able to use their dollars to buy gold, because America's uh, gone off the gold standard and won't sell it, all they have to buy are U.S. Treasury bills. And so all of a sudden, uh, when uh, France or Germany or even Russia or China would gain uh, dollars, all they could do was to keep them safe was to recycle them to the United States and to buy U.S. Treasury bonds, U.S. Treasury securities. And when they bought these securities, they were not only financing the balance of payments deficit, they were financing America's domestic budget deficit. So uh, leaving the rest of the world without an alternative to the dollar, uh, now that they closed gold, meant that other countries were tied in to keeping their savings by making loans to the United States that used this money to finance the military spending that encircled them all, uh, uh, and they, they were financing their own subservience. And uh, the um, immediately, uh, the, um, the largest uh, buyer of the books were the CIA and the Defense Department. Uh, I was hired by uh, Herman Kahn at the Hudson Institute to go down to the White House and to explain to them how this was working. They didn't really intend to, to create an exploitative system, but uh, they said, "This is we're getting a free lunch from the rest of the world. Well, the reason we're do I decided to republish the... Uh, a new edition of superimperialism was to explain this is why Russia and China and Iran and Venezuela and other countries are going off the dollar standard because they're by avoiding dollars, they're no longer financing uh, the American military spending or the uh, financial takeover of their economies uh, that was buttressing world power uh, since World War II and, in fact, and since World War One. And Michael Hudson, I've wrestled with this question in my own mind a lot because you, know, you hear people use the rhetoric that uh, the American Empire, the you know that we are uh, an imperial force in the world, and it seems what it feels like, what it seems like, is that it's an invert. It, it is real, but it is an inversion of what people normally think of as a traditional empire, right? Because a, a traditional empire, you think somewhere goes Portuguese, British, somebody goes in France with force into Africa or, 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 or other parts of the world, impose themselves by force and extract uh, the wealth. It almost seems now like we've inverted it that we, we had up until recently by being, in effect, the safest place for people to put their money once gold went away, that we were extracting the wealth and using, the, using it to build up military power instead of the other way around. Do you get what I'm driving at? Yes. Well, actually, America only uses uh, old colonial force in maybe 40 or 50 countries, uh, Honduras, uh, Latin America, uh, Africa. It, it, it's probably o only overthrow, overthrown 40 governments. Right. Okay. I, right. Fair point. Uh, yeah. you, uh, that doesn't count, of course, the CIA assassination programs and the, co and, uh, the uh, uh, Ukraine uh, giving cookie, $5 billion worth of cookies uh, to uh, reinstall a neo-Nazi uh, regime in Ukraine. But the biggest thing, uh, who's America really going to exploit? 
colonialism exploited less developed countries. Uh, England and Europe exploited Africa, Latin America. Uh, the genius of the American imperialism is it exploits the most uh, developed countries, the industrial countries. It, it exploits mainly Europe, uh, and it, would, it exploited Russia at, under Yeltsin uh, when it uh, uh, essentially sent the neoliberals in there, and it would like to exploit China. Uh, and due to China, what it did uh, to Russia, the, uh, the, the neoliberal uh, exploitation. But the way you exploit developed countries, you're not going to have, um, you're right, you're not going to have a military invasion of Europe. Uh, all you have to do is, is uh, uh, assassinate the leaders as they did in, in Greece, uh, kill the uh, communists as they did in Italy, and uh, finance uh, uh, pro-Americans and the labor parties and the social democratic parties and make them essentially arms of uh, the State Department. Uh, that's not a very nice way of putting it, but it can control the European politics so that it can really exploit them financially. What it wants is their money. Uh, it doesn't want uh, the raw materials from Europe. Uh, it doesn't even want their, uh, their industry uh, primarily. It wants the money that they can make by working in other countries. Uh, and it wants to prevent Europe from having its own currency to uh, make an alternative to the dollar. And it's true that the uh, Europeans do have the euro, but they can only create a few extra euros because they've uh, written their constitution that you can't uh, run a budget deficit of more than 3% of your GDP. Well, of course, that imposes austerity. So the United States essentially says to Europe, and other industrial countries, uh, you have to impose austerity on your own economy. You have to prevent uh, a, uh, your uh, labor force from uh, increasing its uh, uh, revenue so that uh, the financial sector, the real estate sector, and the monopolies uh, can get the money and uh, let Americans buy a share of this and remit the interest and dividends and uh, economic rents uh, to the United States. So the mode of exploitation is that of, it's a, a rentier economy. It's financial, it's monopolies, it's, it's uh, not military. There's, uh, there, there was the use of military force uh, after World War II, but uh, Europe is now so complacent that it's willing not to, uh, uh, not to grow and to essentially to uh, impose a kind of class war against labor there, uh, just as uh, we've imposed here. And you saw that when uh, the uh, Europe fought uh, against Greece uh, uh, recently, uh, right. five years ago, when it, it just bankrupted Greece uh, with, uh, and with debt leverage by the International Monetary Fund uh, and the World Bank. So my book, Super Imperialism, describes how the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank essentially impose austerity programs on other countries so that uh, nothing is left ex uh, for them to keep after uh, they do their exports, uh, they create, uh, uh, they create uh, foreign earnings, uh, nothing that they can do except send their uh, export earnings and industry uh, to the United States. And, and, and Michael Hudson, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned Greece, uh, because it seems to me the way this empire works, it, it, it's invisible in most cases to most people. But uh, I can think of three examples offhand of, you know, when its interests are threatened, it's willing to become quite visible. And I wanted to ask you about that. 
Greece is one example where, if I recall correctly, uh, at one point the European Union actually stepped in with a troika of uh, basically financially based interests and uh, insisted that uh, the Greek uh, legislature uh, get prior approval before passing any laws, which, if I recall that correctly, is an overt act of, you know, you're basically vetoing democracy uh, for a country based on your own power leverage. We did the same thing to Detroit, Michigan, here in the United States, appointing emergency managers uh, to control their debt and everything. Am I off base with this line of thinking here? Yes. Uh, It's not the Troika uh, that did it. Uh, The uh, European governments had agreed that uh, 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 Greece owed 50 billion euros. Uh, the uh, Christine Lagarde of the IMF uh, uh, had a list of all of the tax avoidance that Greek uh, billionaires had put into Switzerland. So uh, they could have grabbed all of this. Europe uh, had reached an agreement with Greece that it was going to say, okay, we're going to uh, write down your debt and we're going to, we don't want to bankrupt you. Uh, we're going to let you go by. But uh, then uh, this uh, American, then you, you had uh, President Obama and the secretary uh, lay down the line to Europe. And uh, uh, first of all, you had Tim Geithner, uh, the bagman uh, for Wall Street, the Secretary of Treasury, uh, go there and say, uh, you cannot uh, you, uh, uh, write down the debts that Greece owed because the American uh, Wall Street companies have uh, written derivative guarantees so that if there's a debt write down, the Wall Street banks will have uh, who made a bet that Greece will pay, will have to pay uh, for uh, anybody who loses money. And then President Obama went to Europe and said, look, we're going to, uh, quite frankly, remove you from office. If you don't uh, insist that Greece pays all the money, uh, it's worth wrecking the Greece economy just so my clients, my largest campaign contributors are on Wall Street. And I have to serve my campaign contributors. And you're not going to write down the debt one penny uh, because... uh, uh, our Wall Street would lose. So it was Wall Street that told Europe what to do. Don't imagine that uh, vicious as the European bankers are, selfish and greedy as the uh, German and French bankers are, they still will, uh, were willing to do something to alleviate uh, the uh, bankruptcy of, of Greece and the uh, basic impoverishment of it uh, under uh, under the U.S. direction. And in my book, uh, Killing the Host, I give all of the documentation uh, on these these trips. So uh, the insistence on austerity abroad, that other countries must impose austerity to prevent, uh, essentially, labor from uh, getting the fruits of its productivity, uh, and that uh, the financial sector should get all of the benefits from from, uh, productivity, specifically financial institutions, controlled by the United States. So uh, bad as Europe is, uh, it's, it's doing what America tells it to do. And, uh, you know, people on Wall Street, as you well know, love to talk about moral hazard when it comes to who providing uh, access to funds in certain ways to working people. But it seems that, you know, when the, when the crisis happened in Greece, I got a little curious about the underwriting of some of these loans. And I looked at them, and they were frankly 
poor quality. They were not the ones. They, they, they there was no real due diligence. There was no. Greece has a problem with inability to collect the taxes that they didn't weigh in. There were other considerations they didn't make. They. It seemed like at some point they had a compliant Greek. Uh, government that uh, oh, you know helped borrow money it was not really thinking about worker working people's interests and so on and yet the moral hazard stops here when it comes to you know I didn't see anybody say well you know what you guys were careless with these loans you're going to have to take a major haircut on this or and let the Greek people run their country isn't that a fair criticism of what's going on here Sure. When uh, Greece joined the European Union, uh, there were certain pre uh, financial preconditions of solvency. Uh, the Greek government hired Goldman Sachs, which uh, presented uh, falsified uh, economic accounts to make it appear as if the Greek government was uh, solvent, when actually it wasn't solvent. Uh, the European, the financial press knew this. They knew that Goldman Sachs had faked the accounts, uh, but uh, they didn't care because they know that, Amer that uh, the American government will bail them out. If you make a losing bet uh, and you're a big campaign contributor, you go to your representative or you, you would go to the Obama administration and say, we don't want to lose $100. Uh, will you bankrupt this country and cause it a bit, cost it a billion dollars just so we don't lose $100? And Obama every single time said yes. Uh, so uh, you're, th this was really the turning point. It was 2009 and 10 uh, under Obama and Geithner that the whole financial lock-in of the world economy uh, occurred to uh, essentially create a, a more usurious, exploitative financial system than uh, had ever been in place before. And he and the Obama administration used the World Bank and the IMF is the uh, uh, sort of the bad guys in all this, whereas they were really arms of uh, U.S. foreign policy. And uh, super imperialism shows how they were created in 1944 or 1945 explicitly to be arms of uh, U.S. financial policy to uh, essentially prevent any kind of rivalry originally from the British Empire and the French Empire. Uh, to the United States and the function of the IMF and the World Bank and the post-war order in 1945 and six was essentially to absorb the British Empire and the French Empire into the U.S. financial area. And um, I, there, before we go on to the next topic, Michael Hudson, I, I feel as if this kind of, first of all, you mentioned that it was exploitative and uh, I, I forget the other word you used, but it, it, it's also seems to me authoritarian because if a government dares defy the economic order that's being imposed on it, it will, could suffer the fate of Greece, fate of Greece and have its own uh, elected officials overruled. Um, and I think although you, the topic of your book is foreign policy and imperialism in that sense. We've seen that in our own country. I mentioned Detroit, the most glaring example, state Puerto Rico, which should have statehood, part of the United States, uh, and PROMESA and the whole process there of saying, well, you guys owe too much money to Wall Street, so we're going to put together a junta of, uh, of financial types and others. We're going to tell you what to do, and the hell with your democracy. Is it, aren't they connected? Uh, of course. Uh, I mean, you, you've just said uh, what, what the connection is. Uh, 
the uh, what America wants is not direct. It doesn't need ownership of foreign property. It just needs the money that uh, <laughs> the property yields. Uh, so uh, again, the mechanism is financial. It's much less direct than in the old Roman Empire, for instance. Uh, it's much more sophisticated and more sophisticated than the British Empire, although very similar in spirit. The coins were better in the old Roman Empire, though. They looked, the early ones looked great. But um, Michael Hudson, here's, uh, you know, I, I've been looking forward to asking you this. This third edition of Super Imperialism is coming out at what seems to me to be a kind of a watershed moment in the history of this uh, imperial force you describe, which is China. And China has always been there, but China is growing China, economically. China is expanding its influence. And uh, it seems to me we're seeing at the same time uh, China making more open place, which, you know, in a free world, why shouldn't it if it wants to, making more open place to, be, whether it's to lend money to developing countries, whether it's to expand its own, you know, Belt and Road initiatives or so on, and that it's being treated, it seems to me, by the United States as an existential threat of some kind, and which includes, uh, you know, uh, irresponsible military escalation in the South China Sea and uh, driving, triggering a new arms race with China and uh, economic measures as well. I sense inside the halls of empire you describe a certain feeling of undertone of panic. I, 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 am I off base? No, the existential threat is that of uh, an economic system. And uh, uh, for an, uh, in August, a few months ago, uh, George Soros uh, gave a speech and saying that uh, American companies uh, like uh, uh, Wall Street firms like BlackRock uh, uh, should not invest in China because, he said, President Xi has announced that he wants a more equal society. And he said, this is not good for foreign investors. If you have a more equal society, that means we get to take less. So we should boycott them. We should isolate them. It's an existential uh, threat. In August, uh, uh, Secretary of State Lincoln came and said, uh, the world faces a choice. It's either democracy or autocracy. Uh, democracy is letting uh, Wall Street and finance capital uh, control governments and run them, uh, become the central planners of the economy along financial lines. Autocracy is uh, what China does, or any country that defends itself against uh, foreign investors, against rentier interests, any country that does what Ecuador does and tries to sue Chevron for polluting the land uh, with the oil spills, uh, that's autocratic. Uh, and so you can choose autocracy or democracy. Well, the, uh, basically what he didn't say was that uh, the political democracy uh, is not economic democracy. Political democracy in America is controlled by the campaign contributors by the donor class. And the job of a politician is to deliver voters to the campaign contributors. And uh, what China is trying to do, uh, and what uh, uh, President Xi came out with also in August, uh, was uh, a, a long article explaining how the next phase of Chinese development is going to create greater equality uh, within China and the fight inequality. And uh, you can be uh, millionaires, you can... The, uh, you're not going to be able to take control of the government. 
And uh, uh, President Putin recently also came out and said, this is really uh, the turning point. This is the crisis of civilization. This is uh, America. The, the world is going to choose. Are you going to let the 1% run the economy in its own interest and concentrate, suck up all the wealth for themselves? Or are you going to create a broadly based prosperity? And uh, the United States is backing essentially a financialized rentier economy. And uh, other countries are trying to defend themselves uh, against this by uh, increasing their productivity and living standards. And that's the existential uh, fight that there is. It's not military. It's not economic. There's no trade competition between America and China because America's already decided to deindustrialize and move its labor force and production facilities abroad. Uh, it's uh, who's going to get the economic surplus. That's what the, the whole uh, fight of civilization is all about, according to uh, Putin, Xi, and people who are trying to create an alternative to American empire. The rhetoric that is used uh, on the Wall Street side, to me, is uh, is uh, reminds me of, for example, this group Freedom House. They call it, or one of those groups that measures freedom in you know countries around the world, which includes the freedom to exploit or extract, uh, you know, as you say, rentier wealth or or otherwise, as a, as if it were, you know, what was Zola's quote? You know, uh, rich man is as free to pass over the bridge in his carriage as the poor man is to starve underneath it. That that form of freedom. But you know, Michael Hudson, you've worked on Wall Street. I've worked on Wall Street, and yet the more distance I get and the more I, I look particularly in the internet well not just internationally and domestically the more uh, the the leaders of these forces who are you know the econ economic leaders not the political ones who work for them uh, the more it seems there's almost a cartoonishly bad guy quality about them I don't want to diminish the sophistication of your book superior uh, super imperialism or the complete complexity of the issue, but it does seem to me on some level, these are bad guys. Is that unfair? Well, Serfdom House does all sorts of covert activities abroad, along with the National Endowment for Humanities. Uh, they've tried to buy control of foreign political parties, uh, what they call the mighty wordlitzer, uh, and they are trying, it's uh, uh, what some people call fascism with a friendly face. Uh, they're trying, they say, oh, uh, America is for democracy, and democracy is taking power. It's a libertarian concept. It's taking power away from governments, which is the road to serfdom, and uh, putting uh, shifting central planning to Wall Street. So the libertarians the dem uh, and uh, the democracy, the free market people, are for centralized planning, much more centralized than you have in Russia or China. But the centralization of planning is, is on Wall Street or in the city of London and the Paris ports in the financial centers. And any government that tries to tax or regulate uh, or shape the economy or even uh, keep uh, basic infrastructure in the public domain to offer inexpensively is accused of being the road to serfdom. Not uh, the real road to serfdom is financial. The real road to serfdom is what happened in the Roman Empire uh, when they uh, the whole country ended up in debt, bankrupt, and uh, a few, 1% uh, ended ended up with all of the, uh, the the land, basically, and turned the economy into serfs. That's democracy. Uh, and uh, uh, yet, and it, it, uh, the, the, it, you, it, we're dealing with an Orwellian rhetoric here. 
And we are, and we're also, uh, you know, I think it, 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 people fail, uh, you know, people like the Obama, uh, Obama and his administration present themselves as technocrats, but what you're describing is really a ferocious and passionately held ideology, as well as, it seems to me, as well as people behaving out of self-interest that, you know, people like to say, well, let's not be partisan and ideological about this. This is ideological extremism to me. This is people saying the dollar rules and I rule the dollar and you do what I say and that's the way it should be, uh, isn't it? This is the the, antiqu- uh, the antithesis of everything that the 19th century thought was democracy. If you look at Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and uh, the whole fight for uh, parliamentary reform, the idea was that in England, the House of Lords could block any kind of taxation of land. Uh, in the upper houses of Germany, France, every government was controlled by the upper house that represented basically the 1%, the hereditary financial and landowning class. The fight for democracy was to let uh, let uh, everybody vote on the theory that uh, wage earners, which are the majority of people, would vote in their own self-interest. And uh, that seemed to be, uh, everybody thought that the wave of the future was going to be uh, what made uh, the United States and uh, Germany and other countries so industrially successful. Governments would invest in basic infrastructure, education, public health, railroads, and uh, they would increase living standards and productivity, and uh, that would be the wave of the future. Uh, The big change occurred in the 1980s with uh, Margaret Thatcher in England and Ronald Reagan in the United States, and they said, we've got to privatize infrastructure. We've got to take all this public infrastructure and uh, uh, make it into, uh, instead of offering public uh, education and healthcare at the lowest price, we're going to create a uh, choke point for rent extraction opportunities. You need the concept of economic rent here. Uh, and uh, uh, essentially uh, turn the uh, educational system, health uh, care system uh, into financialized monopolies. And uh, all of this was depicted as free enterprise, but it's uh, the opposite of everything that Adam Smith and the 19th century thought was free enterprise and everything against what they described as uh, democracies. And that's why uh, economic history is no longer taught in the schools. Because if people actually read what Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and the other uh, writers wrote, they'd say it's the exact opposite of what uh, the rewriting, the Orwellian rewriting of history uh, pretends that they were saying. And it just seems to me as if there's no going back, you know, whether it's Adam Smith saying corporations should be recertified every 20 years, what have you. I know now I'm going back further than I, than the 18th, 19th century, but, but um, what it seems to me me there's no going back to it. It's a system that's uh, incapable of reforming itself, and therefore it may take a a substantial shock or change, but because it also seems to me to be unsustainable. And maybe in closing, if you don't mind giving us your thoughts on that, that it seems incapable of reform, and at least to me, incapable of uh, existing indefinitely as it is. Well, this is exactly why other countries are withdrawing from the system. And the way you withdraw is to de-dollarize your economy, not to use the dollars, uh, not to trade uh, with the United States, not to depend on the United States for your food supply, but to grow your own food, Uh, uh, not to depend on anything essential 
from the United States, like the, the bank clearing system, the SWIFT the bank clearing system. Right. You make your own uh, clearing system, not to depend on U.S. internet companies. You make your own internet companies uh, so that the United States can't play the role of record. So, yes, uh, the, the financialized system is as unsustainable as the Roman Empire was. But they say, uh, we have one uh, ace in the hole. We can blow up the whole world. We're bad. They're bad losers. And uh, uh, all they can do is destroy. They can't provide an alternative because they've already deindustrialized the U.S. There's no, uh, there's no, uh, they wanted to get rid of industry because that was unionized as a labor force. Uh, they want to uh, continue to privatize. And uh, 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 Biden, uh, I guess, has announced this week that uh, he's going to the uh, 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 global warming conference and uh, he said, the future of American energy is coal. Uh, we've appointed uh, Senator Manchin, the uh, senator from West Virginia, the coal mining interest, to be in charge of writing our environmental law. And I've just increased uh, next to coil it's oil, which is the most largest American uh, uh, industrial sector next to real estate. And he's uh, increased uh, oil uh, drilling, offshore drilling. Uh, and so you, you can see how uh, the rest of the world is saying, wait a minute, how are, the, how are we going to prevent uh, global warming may be good for the United States, uh, be, uh, but it's not going to be good. Uh, it's going to flood our countries. Uh, what are they going to do? Uh, so you're, you're having a whole conflict of social systems. And that's the character of today's international rivalry. It's not, uh, uh, not uh, industri- who's, who's more productive uh, industrially. It's a who can uh, carve out monopoly privileges or get rid of uh, monopoly privileges? Will governments be able to prevent a rentier class, a financial class, from taking over the government, or can they resist this and uh, make the government stronger than the financial class? That's the question that's dividing the, uh, the whole world today. Well, it's certainly uh, an interesting time to be alive, isn't it? Uh, so, Michael Hudson, uh, again, I encourage everyone to uh, read the third edition of Super Imperialism, uh, the Economic Strategy of American Empire. And it seems to be in the nature of every empire that eventually it claims its own citizens as victims. So I know you have to go. And uh, Mike, Professor Michael Hudson, thank you so much for all your great work and thank you for coming on the program. Very, very good to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. And we'll be right back after this. I'm Richard R.J. Askow, and this is The Zero Hour.